join me this morning in the book of Ephesians, chapter 5. And we'll read together verses 22 through 33. Let us read God's word. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and they care for their body, just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Anyone tell me what the first commandment is in the list of Ten Commandments? Um, Ten Commandments. First commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Right? Very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. You know why it might be first on the list? You know, I don't know this for sure, but I'm going to take a educated guess if I can call it that. Because... Almost every sin that's committed in, in our lives can be traced back to this, this problem. Anybody know what the second commandment is? Don't make any gods. Don't make any other gods to worship. So the first two commandments deal with idolatry. The idolatry God was addressing in Exodus, of course, was not the same type of idolatry that we struggle with today. You know, we don't go to a store... And, and pick up a, a wooden image that looks like a man or an animal and, and, or metal image and take it home and put it in a special place and bow down to it and worship it. I mean, we don't, we don't do that. The idols of today are different, but they can impact our relationship with God just as the idols of biblical times could do. You know, Tony mentioned this book, and he referred to it back at the end of January and February when he, when he spoke about addictions. It's Kyle Eidelman's book called Gods at War. And it indicates that, that Google and several other Internet companies track the most searched keywords from day to day and month to month and week to week. And advertisers, of course, and political consultants and culture watchers, whoever those are, pay close attention to what the world is seeking. And, and at the end of 2011, sex and video each logged 338 million searches per month. Pornography, 277 million. 
per month. And products such as the iPad and celebrities such as Lady Gaga often, you know, shoot to the top for short periods of time. During a typical period, the singer Justin Bieber, anybody heard of Justin Bieber? Justin Bieber, there were 30 million searches uh, at, at, at one time and 20 million for God. But you know, I'm encouraged that 20 million people were seeking God. Webster's Dictionary defines idol as a representation or symbol of an object of worship. In other words, a, a false god. And so what, what I hope this morning, what my hope and prayer is this morning, is to help you see idolatry through the eyes of God. How he views idolatry. What it is to him. In Revelation 21, 9 and 10, John wrote, Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. The holy city Jerusalem representing in a figurative sense, of course, the people of God or the church is described here as the bride of Christ. In Ephesians, which Tony just read for us, 5, 22-33, Paul illustrated the relationship between Christ and the church as similar to a relationship between a husband and wife. You know, we often go to that because, you know, when we're teaching about family and marriage and so forth and talk about, but it really, that illustration was really to tell the Ephesians about the relationship that Jesus has with his church. So when scripture describes the relationship between the people of God and God, it describes it as a marriage relationship. And, and, and you know, there is no closer relationship, at least in humanity, than the husband-wife relationship. I mean, they're, they're one. The relationship, of course, is, is supposed to be based on love and trust and sacrifice and intimacy and faithfulness. God's relationship to His children is described in several ways, not just between a husband and wife, but there's also some other ways it's described because, well, not everybody experiences marriage. Not everybody has that blessing. For instance, in Luke 15, it's illustrated as a father-son relationship. The parable of the prodigal son, most of you are familiar with that. It's, it's to help us understand how God feels about sinners. You know, people like you and me. He tells about a son who foolishly left the, you know, the comfort and security of, of his home and family so he could you know, live the way he wanted to live. And, and he did for a while. You know, but it didn't turn out so well for him, unfortunately. Or maybe fortunately. He ended up broke, homeless, homeless and hungry. So he decided to go back. And, and, and the father who represents God, you know, I, that's what we really need to notice in, in that parable. It's a parable, but it describes how the father responded to the son who left. And if you read those verses very closely, he ran to him. He'd been looking for him. He ran to him. He kissed him. He, he gave him gifts. He had a huge celebration for him. I mean, he was absolutely thrilled that his son had returned. And he didn't scold him, or he didn't stand there and say, I told you so. He just, he was just so glad 
to have him back. And that's the kind of love he's trying to express to us, the kind of love that that God has for you. He's heartbroken when you leave. He's overjoyed when you return. There's another place in Scripture that, that illustrates the relationship between God and his children as similar to a mother's relationship with the child that she's given birth to. In Isaiah 49, 15, it reads, Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Which is God speaking through Isaiah. I will not forget you. When you think about the love and compassion a mother has for, for her child, it's practically, you know, it's, it's unbreakable. How could, a, how could a mother who brought a child into this world and nursed that child and cared for that child ever forget that child? And God indicates that his bond with you is even stronger than that. To me, the most powerful verse that conveys the love of God for you and me is John 3.16. Not even the whole verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. I mean, there's, there's no greater love than that. Love is a very, very powerful force. You listen to the words of Solomon in the Song of Solomon, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. It says, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. A seal back in those days was used to indicate ownership of a person's most valuable possession. You know, and that's one of the reasons why God refers to the Holy Spirit as a seal. Because that means we are his most valuable possession. The author describes love as irresistible as death and unyielding as the grave. You know, when, when death pursues, he is pursuing every single one of us. And, and, it, and once death has you in its clutches, no one can be released from it. You know, there, there are some stories out there. And movies have been made about, about people who died and came back to life. Okay, you can call me a skeptic if you want to. But, you know, once you're dead, I believe you're dead. And if someone was pronounced dead and came back to life, then, in my opinion, they weren't really dead. Because death doesn't release its hold on a person. He says love is as passionate as fire. So when heat, you know, when heat becomes, you know, hot enough and it becomes very intense, it bursts into flame. The author indicates that love is like that. It's very intense. Now remember, think about this in relationship to God and how He loves you. His love for you is intense. Love is is as relentless as many floodwaters, it says. You've probably seen pictures of cars and houses and bridges being destroyed by floodwaters. Years ago, it was, I think it was 1976, I'm not sure that, when they had the Labor Day flood back in the Wheeling, West Virginia area. We'd been out that day uh, driving. We'd gone somewhere. We, it, it started raining, and it, apparently, it, and I wasn't that aware as that age about what was going on. Apparently, it had been raining for a while in that area of the country. And 
this one day we just had a deluge uh, of rain. And water, and this is a very hilly area where I, where I used to live and where I grew up. This water was running off the hills in powerful torrents. And, and we got stuck. We tried to come back, and this whole area was flooded with water. It was, it was a, a used car lot that was kind of low, and it was all covered with water, so we had to drive. We were just trying to get home. And we couldn't. We reached a point where we couldn't. The waters were coming down the street so hard and so fast. It was carrying chunks of asphalt with it. And so we had to wait for hours before we could even get back home. But that's how powerful and relentless love is. That's what he's talking about here. And the final way it's described is it's priceless. Love is so valuable that no amount of wealth is adequate to purchase it. Can't even get close to it. Now compare that description of human love to God's love that is infinitely more powerful. God loves you and pursues you till you go to your grave. When you accept his love and his invitation of a relationship, you are committing yourself to him and his love. You're committing your life to him. You're committing your affection to him. It doesn't mean you can't love others. It just means you have to love him more. That's the kind of relationship he has with you. That's the kind of relationship he wants with you. So it's not surprising then. It shouldn't be that when he tells us in Luke 14, 26, have you loved anyone more than me, including yourself? You can't have a relationship with me. You can't be my disciple, he says. Now, if your mate told you that they love someone else more than you, you probably would say, I mean, you'd be devastated. And you'd be thinking, it's over. I mean, how, how can I continue to have a relationship with somebody who loves somebody else more than they love me? I mean, it'd be very difficult to have a marriage relationship with someone uh, who loves someone else more than they love you. Yeah, because in a marriage relationship, you expect total commitment. And that's what, that's what the relationship with God is. It's total commitment. Especially from His point of view. From Him, it's total commitment. He is totally committed to you. He expects your total commitment to Him. Not, not because He's insecure or, or He's warped in some way, but because His love is so passionate for you and me. He knows no one will take care of you like He will. No one else will be totally devoted to what is best for you than he will. You know, no one, no human being can love you like God does. The scripture tells us six times that God is a jealous God. And, you know, most of you have probably experienced feelings of jealousy. Um, you know, if you had boyfriends or girlfriends growing up or even best friends growing up, um, you know, you, you probably had that experience. When I was dating a girl I wanted to marry, and the one I actually did marry, I was rooming with a guy who also had an affection for her. He was my roommate. So that made for some very awkward, jealous times in, in our apartment. Um, you know, fortunately, she made the right choice, so all, everything's good. Jealousy in regard to a person is desiring something someone else has. If your boyfriend or girlfriend or best friend develops an interest in someone else, you know, you become jealous. 
you know, because your fear is that that relationship may be taken from you. You know, and that's what God does not want to happen. That's why he's a jealous God. He doesn't want something else, some kind of idol in your life, to cause you to be taken from him. He doesn't want your relationship with him to be destroyed or, or damaged. He's so jealous for you. You know, you might think that maybe tarnishes his reputation a little bit. But it really means that he feels that there is no one else like you. The book of Hosea is an attempt by God to help Israel understand how relentless God's love was for her and is for her, even though she was unfaithful to him. You know, God commanded Hosea, if, you, if you've ever read Hosea, to marry an adulterous woman so God could communicate to Israel just how unfaithful they had been. Those of you who've been married and divorced probably can relate to that better than those of us who have not. God describes here how he felt about Israel, how he feels about Israel. Listen to these words. They're powerful. When Israel was a child, this is in Hosea 11. Beginning in verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. But they didn't know that I was the one who was healing them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down and fed them. You you can hear God saying, I I love these people. I took care of these people. I devoted myself to these people, and they kept going off and loving others. Verses 5 through 7, you begin then to hear the anger. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword is going to rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. You can hear the anger. You know, first it's, it's, it's hurt. But then, you know, the, the, it turns to anger. And even though he's hurt and angry that the Israelites kept going after idols, his love is so jealous he refuses to give up. He says in verse 8, how can I give you up, O Israel? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboyim? Those were two cities that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah. My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. You can hear the emotions of God in that. His love, his disappointment, his hurt, his anger, and yet his love continues to break through, his jealous love and how much he cares for those people. Those, those to me, are are some of the most beautiful expressions of God's love in the entire Bible. The pain of an unfaithful partner is probably one of the most agonizing and discouraging human experiences that we have. 
Eidelman in his book kind of used this illustration, and I'll just apply it to myself. Can you imagine that after 35 years of marriage, I, I go to Kim one night and say, hey, honey, I have a date tomorrow night. Of course, she'd be saying, oh, really? You know, are you going out with the kids or something, or what are you doing? No, I, it's this girl I met at church. I was, you know, I had seen her, and I, I thought she was pretty, so tomorrow night we're going out to dinner. And she, and, and, and here's how she would say, she'd say, oh, really? Well, that's great. You know, I'm so happy for you. Is she pretty, you know? What's she like? And, and then, so what, the next night comes, and, and, and I, I leave, and she says, have a good time. And I go out, and we have dinner, and then I come back home. And I open the door, and she comes up and says, oh, how was it? Was she nice? What you, you know? No, that's not what would happen. Right? That's not what would happen. At least I would hope that wouldn't happen. Because if it didn't happen, I would know that she really didn't care about me. No, no the doors would probably be locked. The locks would be changed, and my clothes would be out in the driveway. See, when your affections are greater for worldly things, and your relationship with God falls way down on the list of priorities, what message do you think that sends to God? How do, you, how do you think God feels about that when you find time for so many other things and yet you have a hard time finding time for Him? He has a passionate love for you that He's, he's tried to communicate many times in His Word. You know, I mean, we can't, how can you ignore a love like that? I mean, that's idolatry. In today's world, that's idolatry. How do you imagine that God feels about your unfaithfulness to Him? Because that's what idolatry really is. It's unfaithfulness toward God. The God who loves you more than anybody else. When, 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 you, when you let things get in the way of your relationship with God, I don't care whatever it is, God is hurt. It hurts Him. He's, and then, and then he, you know, he, he gets angry sometimes. We read about his anger. But he's so jealous for you. Because there's just no one like you for him. You just cannot love the world and God. 1 John 2.15 says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. You cannot love God if you love the world. That's what he's telling you. Remember what the Song of Solomon indicated. The jealousy of love is as fierce as the grave. And you can, of course, multiply that exponentially with God. And as we read in Hosea, God will pursue you. He is a jealous God. He is jealous for your love. And as a result, Eidelman wrote that he will not give up without a fight. Anything that steals your affection, your, your time, your interest, your love away from God and His body is a form of idolatry. And so we've got to be sure that we're not allowing that to happen in our lives. Back in 96, this was a, an illustration in Eidelman's book, the year the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl in New Orleans. Brett Favre was the quarterback, and there was a, a banner hanging in Lambeau Field, which is the home of the Packers, that had these words. Our Favre who art in Lambeau, hallowed be thy arm. The bowl will come, it will be won in New Orleans as it is in Lambeau. Give us this Sunday our weekly win and give us many touchdown passes 
but do not let others pass against us. Lead us not into frustration, but deliver us to Bourbon Street. For thine is the MVP, the best of the NFL, and the glory of the Cheeseheads, now and forever. Go get them. So what is idolatry? Is it unfaithfulness toward God? Yes. Is it committing adultery against God? Actually, yeah. Because adultery is unfaithfulness. And you know, I probably shouldn't have to say this, but if, if you're going to be unfaithful toward anyone, God would be the last person you would want to be unfaithful toward. Not, not just because he's an all-powerful God and he's going to judge you someday, but because he loves you more than anyone ever will. So the question I want you to ask this morning as you think about this, are you faithful to him? Do you consider yourself very faithful to God? How often do you converse with him during the week? Do you have an intimate relationship with him? How often do you give him the opportunity to converse with you each week through his word? How often do you think of him other than right now or Wednesday night? How often do you work in his vineyard, serve him in his vineyard? You know, he, he gave it all for you. What are, we, are you willing to give for him? God came here today because you're here. He's here right now, as a matter of fact. He wants to be near you. He's here because He wants to be near you. He wants to enter into a relationship with you if you have not made that commitment yet. He loves you. Passionately, you heard the words. He calls you to a relationship with Him. How will you respond to that? We invite you to do that right now as we stand and sing.